In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Canarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is God's word. And so uh, if, if you ever begin to wonder about me and like short-term memory loss, I can just assure you um, I've been doing it my whole life. So Mike had asked, he said, hey, remind everybody that there's a the side room if you need to go in there and the service is streaming live in case your kids uh, need a little space to get the wiggles out or whatever. And then we're supposed to say, if you really just want to avoid people and go in there, that's not for you. It's for people with kids getting the wiggles out. So there you go. That's the side room. And uh, yeah, I forgot that about 30 seconds after Mike told me. So anyway, Mike, thank you. Sorry about that, everyone. Now you know. And my uh, simple prayer over this time is this. May the words of my mouth and the med- meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So yeah, God came into this world sort of as the kids were just grappling with um, in, in the flesh, he was he was here as a person. That's that's the big idea. I want you to think about your year in review for a second. And this could be uh this could be easy, this could be hard, but just take a moment and just reflect on this. I in fact I'm just gonna be quiet for a second. How how has your year been? If I had to guess, there's some things outside of your control, um, maybe some things that make you sad in your own personal life, maybe some things that you're concerned about, could be the state of the world, the country, the city, your generation, the younger generation, your friends, your family, even within yourself. There could be good things, sometimes all tangled up with, with the hard stuff, Sometimes clearly distinct, um, maybe ways you've changed for the better, maybe as a person of faith, uh, a way you've experienced God, way you got some clarity in your calling or direction in life, some kind of glimmer of hope or moment of joy. And sometimes when we read something like the Christmas story, we forget that these people were a lot like us. This short scripture touches on all kinds of things. Um, It hints of the political realities, you know, in the days of Caesar Augustus and when Quirinius was uh, doing his thing. And but these were these are significant things in the lives of these people that were on their mind. These are these are markers in time for them when they read this story. There were things about their family and their identity, um, the fact that they were from the line of King David, right? And the town they were from, they were from Nazareth. We talked about last, last week how this might have been kind of a, a Roman garrison to some degree. This might have been where the Roman military was set up. Joseph as a carpenter may very well have been working for the occupying government. He may have built crosses. 
Who knows? Um, but Nazareth, even, even if it wasn't um, the Roman garrison, we, we think it might have been, but uh, even if it wasn't, it, it kind of had a bad name. You know, Tucson and Phoenix kind of have our rifts, right? They can, we, uh, my favorite, you know, word for, for Phoenix is beige. And, um, and people, you know, like to say things about Tucson. But, but Nazareth would be like Yuma almost. Like, sorry if you're from Yuma, but it's like, wait. <laughs> That's the point. It's like, who, who's from Yuma? What happens in Yuma? What is happening in Yuma, right? Like, um, isn't that just a place you go to to get somewhere else, right? Um, so there were all these things. There was their identity. There was where they were from. Uh, there, there was the fact that they were, they were pregnant. This is their, their physical life, um, and they're going on a long journey. Uh, they're betrothed, not married, and pregnant. In their day, in their culture, this was a very complex situation. Again, we talked about it last week, but they were bearing an immense emotional burden at this time. But they were also having this joy within them of a deep experience with God. Mary and Joseph had just had two of the most profound experiences with God that likely anyone in their town um, had ever experienced or ever would. They, they seriously, these are like once in a lifetime moments. Mary ends up seeing quite a bit more in her lifetime than the average person. But for Joseph, this is, this is like unexpected. Probably none of his friends or relatives had ever experienced or ever would experience anything like it. And for him, this was probably a one-time thing. And the result of this is that they were going to bear a child, a promised, powerful, and important child. So we read this in a historic document, and it's strange to us. You know, it's this short. It's just that. It's very, very short. And why? Well, today, when we write a history, we want all the surrounding details. We want it to be nearly a memoir, right? We want the, the feelings, the facts, and the backstory. But ancient historians often weren't interested in those details. Uh, maybe it's because they so told so many stories orally that they really just wanted to capture the spark notes. Maybe. Or maybe they were just cutting to the chase and saying, hey, here's, here's the facts. That seems to be the, the way their histories worked out. Maybe it's because paper was rare and expensive. People would literally hoard it and hold on to it if they found it. Even if it was a writing they disagreed with entirely because it was so hard to accomplish. But whatever the reason, this is all we get about this moment when God is born as a person. Just, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It almost reads like, yesterday I went to the store and I got some cayenne pepper. Like, it's just like details, like little facts, right? That's kind of how it reads. But hold on, this is, a massive moment. This is a massive moment. In a way, history literally hinges on this moment. Um, the ancient people of God were waiting for a, a savior, a ruler, someone who they could put their hope in to come into the world. And some of them believed at the end it was Jesus and their lives would never be the same. And now, by nature of living in what we call Western society, your life even if you have gone through your entire life not believing a lick of this, your life has been entirely shaped and altered by the fact that millions of people throughout history have to some degree believed that this happened. 
many of the assumptions that you have when you walk around and just live life in a society that's shaped by Western culture are shaped by this story, by these few sentences that God decided to enter into the world as a person. Luke is our biographer here, and um, he'll go on to say what all of this means uh, to some degree, even though this little moment is so short. But Luke was an educated Greek physician who converted to Christianity. So Luke, who's writing this, is someone whose entire life ends up being reoriented by a belief that God entered into humanity and became a person. His entire life is reoriented around this moment. Has yours been reoriented around this moment? Maybe that's why you're here. What would that even mean to reorient your life? You ever thought about that? So first, um, before you think about that more, let's just, let's just imagine what the story doesn't tell us. So Mary, unmarried Mary, in an ancient shame and honor culture, is pregnant, um, and by nature, that's very difficult. This is last week's sermon. Uh, you can go listen to a lot of why that was a very difficult thing to live through. But now they are off to Bethlehem to submit And when I say submit, what do I mean? Well, they're submitting to the Roman Empire, who they do not trust, nor should they. Um, They are getting counted by the Roman Empire. Why? So that their taxes can be adjusted. Um, They're under an oppressive government. They're taxed by multiple governments at this time. They're bending under foreign and spiritual and oppressive rule from outside of their nation that they are not happy about. And if they believed at all what the angels had said about their son, their, their biggest thing going for them was that this child might begin to fight against this system someday and overthrow what they are under and experiencing. On top of this political reality that they're living under and the fact that they are having to deal with it personally, Um, they are, as it turns out, pregnant at not such an easy time in history. Many of you, uh, women especially, know far more than me that pregnancy can be hard. But honestly, it was even harder then. I have to acknowledge some of us here have lost children too. And then that was a common occurrence. Death in childbirth is a common occurrence for the mother and the child. And to make a treacherous journey while pregnant in that time is not ideal at all. Imagine this. They had to go 90 miles or so on foot or on some kind of animal um, when they are on the verge of having this child. Now, what kind of conversations do you think that they had? There may have been some mild irritability during this time, right? Um, Perhaps. Maybe they were reflecting on the state of the world and just how that was affecting them today as they, you know, while pregnant, not having had the easiest several months, trekked through rocky roadways on their way to get counted so their taxes could go up. This isn't really going smooth. 
At some point, you know, they were committed to this idea that God had spoken to them through this angelic vision. So I believe that there was a hope within them. And, began, and maybe they began to kind of wonder what that was going to look like. Maybe they began to make some plans and, and think through what, what could happen someday through our child. But I wonder if they even thought about this. You know, if one of them looked at the other and said, so what's it going to be like for this kid to be, you know, of the Holy Spirit? Like, he's going to be God with us? Like, what, what's that going to be like? Right? And of course, then they roll or stroll, I guess, into Bethlehem, and there's no place to stay. And what, what's this like, right? I, I don't have a great scenario for you, but I don't know. Let's say you felt like you got a really unfair tax bill, massive tax bill in the mail. You get one of those dreaded IRS letters. And, um, you know, for some of you, imagine you're married. For some of you, you are married. For some of you, imagine when you were pregnant or whatever. You get the tax bill and you go, well, we're due in four days and we have to go to IRS headquarters because apparently that's what you have to do, this letter says, right? And so you go, um, all right, I, I don't want us to have this birth in the air, and we've got four days, so we've got that high-mileage Corolla. Let's start driving. Let's try to get there. Let's try to get, get to IRS headquarters. You get into town. There's no hotels, and you uh, decide to pull off, and you get into a parking garage, and you're going to sleep in the car, right? Okay. I, don't, I actually think that's probably easier than what they were dealing with. But imagine how you'd be feeling about your year. How would you be feeling about God's sovereignty and his plan for your life? Um, how would you be feeling about just the state of the world? Are you, are you in a good mood in this moment? Right? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you, maybe Mary and Joseph were optimists, but I have to assume this is a bit taxing. This might not be a peaceful moment for you, especially if your water breaks in the seat of the Corolla and you realize we're doing this now, right here, right? And it's happening. And what a scene it would be. Joseph delivering his baby, Mary screaming, and they have in the back of their mind, somehow this is God entering into the world. This is the Holy Spirit baby right here, right? And it's crying and hungry and there's bodily fluids and everyone's exhausted and the crying, hungry baby is God. What would it be like to raise a God baby. This is one of the greatest and most mysterious teachings of the Christian faith, uh, the hypostatic union. You can go nerd out over that, but I wouldn't actually. I really wouldn't. I would just sort of try to sit in this for a second. For God to do what the Bible says he did, to become a sinless person, perfect enough to fulfill what a person ought to be and do, but also to be like us enough to actually represent us before the face of a perfect God. That God had to become an actual person while remaining actually God. 
So Joseph sits there in this stable, exhausted, holding a screaming baby while his wife catches her breath in a pile of straw and they look at God. Isn't that a little bit like the life of faith to some degree? Have you ever thought about this? God has come into my life, right? But here I am in it, and it feels like utter chaos. God has come into my life, but here I am in it, and it's not making sense to me, right? Life is full of these tensions, the beauty and the trials. We're in a broken world, but beautiful moments and streams of light come in, and it's all intertwined. All of our journeys, I think of my journey with, with my daughter, um, raising her. I remember seeing her and realizing I love this child, right? But not feeling ready to do this. Um, I remember raising her and having these little glimmers of like, oh, actually, this isn't as bad as I thought. And then one day I told her to do something and she looked at me, clenched her fist and yelled, no! And I went, oh, that's weird. Nobody ever taught her to do that. <laughs> that was like evil. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it kind of was. Because uh, she's not innocent, right? So you've got all of this stuff going on at the same time. Beautiful things, hard things. And that's just the story of a very imperfect human scenario. What was it like for Mary and Joseph to raise baby God into adolescent God in the flesh, right? Well, uh, as in the intro, the biographers don't give us a ton of information because probably it was kind of like raising any other kid. They probably taught this kid to eat and walk and help out around the house and talk to others and listen to adults. The difference with Jesus would have been that he was born without the natural proclivities that we are Look, um, there's this idea of inherited sin, and this has been in certain circles viewed as a very oppressive doctrine over the years. But honestly, um, it's kind of become common knowledge now. Even kind of even neuroscience seems to show us, yeah, it, it actually works this way. There can be a thought pattern from your parents that you might be born with. There could be a, a natural tendency that's actually kind of just a part of who you are without you ever making those kind of choices yourself. We inherit more than just visual traits. We inherit ways of thinking and patterns and tendencies. Unless you hear that and say, I'm doomed to be like my parents, you're not. Um, redemption is core to our purpose in life that we receive enough grace to change, but you will incline in the directions of, uh, that you inherit without any effort. And this happens to be the very reason that God became a person. Because all people tend away from God or tend away from one another somehow, right? Um, that's a simple definition of sin, where we are self-protecting, self-centering. We, we tend to look after ourselves. It's only natural. But it pushes us away from loving others. It pushes us away from receiving input from God. And to undo this, for there to be any hope for humanity, we need to move back toward God and back toward one another. 
And, we, and to do that, we're going to need a pattern to follow. We're going to need a priest, meaning we're going to need to be forgiven when we fail or else we'll never dig ourselves out of the hole. We're going to need propitiation. We're going to need somebody to, to pay for what we can't make up for in our lives or else we're going to become hopeless. We need a person to help. So what was different about Jesus? What makes him the person? It's not that he was born with supernatural powers. I've read the book Lamb, which is kind of an imagination of Jesus and his childhood friend Biff and all the crazy things that Jesus did as a child. That's not how it went. I think we would have been told those tales. Um, It's not that he was born with supernatural powers. It's that he was born with a right orientation to God the Father because he was the eternal son. And what would that mean? Even as a child, it would mean he trusted God, that by, by nature, he was inclined that way. He loved God, and therefore he loved other people. As opposed to self-protecting, he was self-giving. He was merciful instead of vengeful. He's not looking out for his own survival. He's actually giving and looking out for the best interests of others. He still had to grow up and learn to walk and talk, but he grew up in the right direction which is why even when his parents thought he disobeyed them, they ended up with a fond memory. Here's the only little piece of his childhood that we get from Luke. Luke 2. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. And his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, um, by the way, this is another rough week in their lives. Can we just acknowledge that? Have any of you missed, been missing a child for three days? Probably not. Um, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. But when his parents saw him, they were astonished, which I think is a a soft way of saying it. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Can you, would you understand that saying he's spoken to you? I wouldn't if my kid was like, didn't you understand I needed to be at my father's house? And I'm like, no, I don't, actually. Um, They did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. She, She didn't understand this, but she's like, there's something different about him. She's kind of storing up these memories in her heart. Now, that could sound incredible for Jesus to be such a good guy in a world of brokenness, but I don't know if it was. The historical teaching on Jesus' incarnation is that the whole experience was a sacrifice in a form of suffering. Why is that? Can you, can you imagine the burden of knowing the good and always seeing things the right way amidst a world full of people who don't, won't, and can't. 
to be utterly alone in that? Can you imagine that? What's it like to trust God and love others amidst a culture that doesn't trust God and is afraid to give and love one another? See, sometimes our lives, as we begin to trust in Jesus, or even begin to walk in ways that Jesus commanded, can be hard because we're following the patterns of someone who does not belong to this world. And we can suffer the consequences. Add on top of that our own failures, life can be hard. But some of the suffering stands before us like Mary and Joseph's. It's not necessarily the impact of our choices. It may even be because of our faith. It's feeling an extra burden because of what God has called us into. We often forget that Jesus lived this at the deepest level possible, more than we ever could imagine. Yes, he ends up dying a criminal's death he didn't deserve. That is the, the way the story goes, right? Paying a debt for sinners who, you know, he, that he was not one of them, right? It, he didn't owe it himself. But more than that, he suffered the loneliness of trusting God and having hope amidst a world that didn't, wouldn't, and couldn't fully identify. Not even Mary and Joseph could identify with him in that because they, don't, they didn't know what it meant to love being in their father's house. See, they had the God child in their house, but they were still just people like you and me. Theologians sometimes refer to their version of this and our version of this as the already but not yet experience. It's what it is to have faith and even experiences that break open the window of your heart to know that God is real and he's with us in this life and that his kingdom has come, but to simultaneously be living in the midst of a broken world where we are broken too, where the government's still corrupt, where life isn't fair, when the outworkings of life and even God's will seem beyond the possibility of our comprehension. Jesus has already come. As the kids were talking about in the catechism, his Holy Spirit is with us, but things in this world are not the way they're supposed to be. See, every Christmas we retell this story and we should reflect on these realities. Jesus has already been here. He was born in that manger, but this world is still broken and so are we. We are like Mary and Joseph. We get Jesus. They got him as a child. They got to hold him and see him. But they didn't get to experience the fullness, right? They got him physically, but not maybe as much spiritually. We're promised the Spirit's presence, but not as much physically as he's promised to return to us, but we do not know what life is like with him here. He's promised to come and purify his creation and every heart of the brokenness, of sin that's splintered in every direction, but today we still experience that splintering, even in our hearts. Sadly, we can often think this is due to God not being good and not being God at all. The thing is, it's not Jesus falling short. It's that we can't see everything that he can. 
Our hearts can't see. We can only experience this with partial vision. We can't trust enough. Our love is so shallow. Our inclinations are in all the wrong directions. But historically, Advent, um, this season that we're in, is not just about um, remembering the stable. It's not. It's about reaffirming hope that someday, because of the cross, Jesus will set all of this straight. He'll set it all straight. And we will experience life lived as he did. But in a restored creation, we'll experience someday what it's like to love without self-centeredness. What it's like to trust without self-protection. And at that time, neither we nor he will be alone in that experience. We'll be known as well. More deeply known than we could ever imagine. Years later, so Jesus has come. He has died on the cross. He has raised from the dead, as the kids talked about today. He has ascended And the apostles believe, and the apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in a city called Corinth. And um, they've become kind of divided and angry with each other. So if you think that churches being kind of a mess is new, um, it's really like immediate in the Bible. Um, That's really not news. And Paul wrote this to that church. He wrote, love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not insistent on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Prophecies pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will pass away. We know in part and we prophesy in part. Here he's talking about the views and the feelings about those views that have divided them. But, he says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know even as I have been fully known. What an incredible thing to say. It's kind of like Mary and Joseph when they looked at that baby born in that stable. What do you see when you look into your child's eyes? You see a little person kind of like you, right? When I looked at my daughter when she was born, I saw little glimpses of me, just little bits. When we try to imagine God, what it'd be like to have God with us, when we pray to God, when we worship God, in our mind's eye, the best version we can imagine looks kind of like us. That's as far as we can see, kind of like one of us. We image God looking, you know, as if we were looking into a scratched up and cloudy mirror. That's the way that Paul described it. We see in a mirror dimly. What do you see when you look in a mirror? Yourself. You see yourself looking back. You see that person with the brokenness and the problems and all that stuff looking right back at you. When we try to look at God, we often layer onto him all of the weaknesses that we have, all the brokenness that we have. 
We know he doesn't have them, but we can't understand what it's like to be outside of this life. We can't. And what Paul was saying is that's what it's like for us here on this earth. But there's a day coming when that mirror is removed and it's followed by an embrace and we look face to face with the one who made us. And we understand and we're known and he knows us. We may want the best. We may not know how to achieve it in this life. We may want to trust God, but tend to be skeptical. We may want to love others, but struggle so much with our own inward voice that we become self-absorbed. We can layer that stuff onto God and find his perspective entirely impossible to connect with. And you know what? That's life. That's the life of faith. So why keep walking in it? Why bother? This life is hard. It was hard for Mary and Joseph. It was hard for Paul. It was, Paul. it was hard for the Corinthians. It's been hard all the way. It's because we can engage. You can keep going because it's leading somewhere better to a day where you'll be known, fully known, and then you'll know. Mary and Joseph saw the baby in person, but they didn't get where this was headed. They didn't know what was going to happen. We get his spirit. But we can't see him. We can't touch him. But we wait in hope for a day when love is our new and natural inclination because our sins have been paid for and the mirror gives way to an embrace. And we'll know our God like Jesus does and live with him here on this earth forever. Before Jesus went to the cross, he and his disciples were sitting at dinner you know what dawns on me right here? Remember when he was 12 years old and he was sitting in the temple talking to the priests? What day was that? Was it the Passover? He was learning about the meaning of the bread and the wine when he was 12. And he sits at the dinner with them. He's looking them in the eye, but they don't understand who he is. They don't understand what he's going to do. Just like Mary and Joseph didn't understand what he was learning and what he was talking about in there with those priests, right? They didn't understand the chaos that was about to descend on them when he got arrested. They didn't know what it all meant. They didn't understand the power that God's spirit was going to give to them. They didn't understand the opposition they were going to keep receiving from the Roman Empire. They didn't understand a bit. But he took the wine and bread from their Passover feast and he said something that would have been too deep for them to understand. He said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat of it, remember me. And they're going to need to remember. And then he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. Every time you drink of it, remember me. And they were going to need to remember, weren't they? And then he told them this, I tell you the truth. I won't drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's how you endure. You believe there's a kingdom coming. He's inviting them to continue with him, not seeing the whole picture. He's no longer going to be with them in the flesh, but by the Spirit. He's giving them a promise that the fullness of his kingdom is still in the future when we'll be known and we'll know him fully 
So what are we anchoring this in? Look, you look back on Mary and Joseph, I don't know what you think of them. Maybe they're you know, God's chosen people. Maybe they're just heroes. Maybe there's obscure religious figures that, you know, get plastered all over the uh, light poles. But God was faithful to those two. That's the hope of, of Christianity. God was faithful to those two. What about the disciples, those people who, who followed after him, who believed in him after he was resurrected? Um, yeah, they, they all, most of them were killed. But they live for what they believed in. And if God is doing what he says he's doing, then he was faithful to them. What about the millions of people who've trusted him throughout the ages? If God is being faithful to them and is going to carry them into a kingdom, he can do that for you too. He is not deficient. We just can't see as well as he can. We're just human. The invitation of Christianity is to come to him, arms open, hands open, and say, I don't know how, but I need to trust you because I don't have this under control on my own. That's the invitation to this table, is to come to him by faith, even if it's just a little bit. Mustard seed of faith is all you need. Next, I'm going to pray and leave two minutes of silence for us just to uh, explore that with God. If there's something you need to say to God, if there's something you need to admit to God, um, or if you just need to, to ask him, you're real, that two minutes is for you. We're going to do our three weekly acts of worship that the Christian church has always done. Um, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. That's what I've just explained. We're going to sing together. It's going to be very Christmassy today, but I hope that you see that the, the truths of these songs are incredibly deep. They, uh, they are far deeper than any shopping experience um, ever could be. Then we're going to uh, give because we, we believe that this is indeed the story that's reoriented us entirely. This is the, the true story of the world. Um, we want this to be a, as big a part of our lives as everything else. At the Christmas season, it's a good moment to say, what do I worship? And do that with your giving. Um, most of all, we just affirm Jesus is at the center of our lives. So I'm going to pray for us and leave this time for you to uh, just lift your hearts to him. So pray with me. Father, we are here. This story is, is, uh, is incredible. Like, where, where has this ever been told? How, how could it be that a God would become one of us and, and not only become one of us to rule over us? There's so many great myths that are like that. The gods that rule and demand all submission to them, but you come and you serve. You entered in as a baby and you suffered alone. And you paid the price for our failures. You bore the burdens that we bear. Every single burden we bear, all the things that make us weep and worry, you've been there. You've done that. You understand. But you're more powerful and you can see everything. How we need a God like you in our lives. Help us to reach out to you by faith and lead us now as we pray.